Hi, you're listening to Pod Academy. This podcast is a lecture by Dr. Richard Barnett, and it's about history. What is history? What do we mean by history? Why do we study history? We always write history and we always read it through the prism of our contemporary concerns. There's no such thing as an objective reading of history. Now, this doesn't render history completely subjective. What it means is history is always coloured, it's always brought to life, and sometimes it's always distorted by our present preconceptions, our own concerns, our political concerns, our own identity, where we stand in our own societies and where we want to go. So history, in some ways, always serves the needs of the present. That doesn't mean it's worthless. In some ways, that can make it even more valuable. Dr Barnett's lecture was part of a series of lectures on thinking put on by the IF Project, the Free University in London. Dr Barnett started with a trip to the Jon Snow pub in Soho, in the heart of London. Any of you heard of the person it's named after? Any of you heard of Jon Snow? He's commemorated very widely in Soho. If you start at the pub and you walk in simply a few hundred metres around the pub, you'll find plaques, you'll find commemorations. He's got a couple of blue plaques. He's got a rather strange red curbstone outside the pump, which clearly has some pub, which has some significance. And until recently, uh, it's been taken away for building work, but there was this very strange memorial here. There was a water pump with the handle missing, which was a memorial to Snow's work. And this man has been claimed as a major figure in the history of science and medicine. You can see here, he's a founding father, he's a pioneer, he's a man who makes discoveries. So what are we talking about here? How did this man come to have a pub named after him? One version of this story begins on the morning of the 8th of September, 1858, with an event that took place outside the pub. As I say, there's a little um, red bit of red granite in the curb outside the pub, and this marks the site of a communal water pump that stood there in the 1840s and the 1850s. And on the morning of the 8th of September, 1858, a party of workmen approached this water pump. You can see here a very expensive reconstruction of where it stood and took the handle off. Now, this was a really, really strange... No expense spared for you. This was a really, really strange thing to do. Soho at the time was an area of poor immigrants. Running water, pumped, uh, piped water into a house was an absolute luxury, and you probably wouldn't have wanted it anyway because most of the piped water in London was pumped straight out of the Thames. So this pump was a major source of drinking water, washing water, cooking water for the poor of the area. But these workmen were acting on the orders of the local parish council. They were convinced um, by this Dr. Snow that this pump was responsible for a major cholera outbreak which had killed hundreds of people in Soho over the past few weeks. Now Snow, like most of us who live in London, was an immigrant. He was born up in Yorkshire in 1813, initially apprenticed to a surgeon, this was how he became a doctor if he didn't have much money in the period, came to London, studied a bit at um, what became UCL, the University of London, and then set up as a, basically a GP working in Soho. Now, an important question for any historian, how do we know all of this? Well, we're lucky with Snow because he wrote, he produced two pamphlets. Don't worry about the details here, but this is the front cover of the first pamphlet he produced. During an outbreak of cholera that hit Soho in 1848, Snow became convinced that this disease wasn't being spread in the way that most doctors thought it was, which was through the air, but instead through dirty water. So he wrote this pamphlet called On the Mode of Communication of Cholera. So historians like me can read this and try and work out his thinking. 
Now, in the next epidemic that hit Soho, 1854, Snow carried out two studies to try and prove his hypothesis. In this first edition, it was really little more than a hunch, but he tried to carry out two studies to prove it. The first of these, sometimes referred to as the ghost map, very, very simple experiment. He took a map of Soho, he marked, he marked the location of the pump, and then around it, on the side of each house, he marked a little bar chart showing the number of people who died from cholera. So you can see here beautiful graphic representation of the epidemic, and you can see that the further away you get from the pump, the deaths start to fall off. <coughs> so this is a very nice piece of visual evidence showing some kind of correlation between the water pump and deaths from cholera. The second um, was rather more ambitious. He got hold of all of the birth and death returns, death returns in this case, for people living in South London. South London at the time was supplied by two different water companies. Some of the water was pumped from the Thames, pretty much where Battersea Park is today, so quite a dirty, polluted stretch of the Thames. The other company pumped their water from much further upstream, Teddington, where the river was uncontaminated by the waste of London. So Snow realised if he compared death rates between these two companies, he could show whether the dirty water was, was in fact a factor. And he found out that, in fact, this was the case. People who were drinking dirty downstream water contaminated with the sewage of London were ten times more likely to get cholera than people drinking fresher water. Snow also used this to explain anomalies about the spread of the disease. If we go back, for example, to this map, if you imagine disease being spread through the air, well, we all breathe. You'd think everybody who breathes the same air would have roughly the same chance of contracting the disease as everybody else. But if you look at this map, you can see there are places very close to the site of the pump, for example, a local brewery, where nobody got the disease at all. Snow went and spoke to the people who worked in the brewery, spoke to the foreman, and discovered, in fact, that none of the brewers, none of the people working there, ever drank anything other than beer. One of the perks of the job was you could drink as much beer as you like. They never touched the water through the pump. So Snow could use this kind of anecdotal evidence to explain why people weren't um, getting cholera. He was also able to link a case of cholera that took place not in Soho, but up in Hampstead at the same time. A single isolated case of cholera broke out. A woman called Susanna Ely died. Nothing apparently to connect her with Soho, but Snow did a little bit of investigative work, a little bit of digging. He found out that this woman had... She was used to live in Soho. She used to live on Brighton Broad Street, very near the pump. And she'd acquired, and God knows how, a taste for the water from the pump. So every time one of her relatives or friends went up to Hampstead to see her, they'd bring a barrel of water, she'd drink it, she drank it, and she died from cholera. So Snow was able to make some quite sophisticated connections here, connections we'd be quite proud of making today if we were epidemiologists. Now, if you go online, if you Google Snow, what you will find are a lot of books, websites, television programs celebrating him as a hero. He's seen as a major figure in the creation of scientific medicine, the great revolution in 19th century medicine, which is germ theory, a new understanding of how disease spreads. Sometimes he's described as the father of epidemiology, epidemiology being the uh, discipline that deals with the sort of the demographics of disease, how it affects populations, how it spreads. So his story has become part of a bigger historical story, one that's all about progress, the idea that history is essentially a journey from ancient ignorance to modern knowledge. So Snow, as I say, has become a hero. This is why he's celebrated. Now, everything I've told you about Snow so far, about his work, is absolutely true so far as it goes. But if we do what all good historians should do, if we go back to our sources, if we go back to the maps and the books and evidence from the time, we get a <coughs> different picture of what Snow was actually doing. 
First of all, if you read his pamphlets, Snow isn't pushing germ theory. Snow doesn't think that little living organisms in the water are responsible for cholera. He thinks it's some kind of poison. He thinks it's some kind of inorganic toxin that somehow got into the water. So he's not actually kind of involved in the emergence of germ theory. He's pushing what's actually quite an old, and, and as we would now see, wrong version of cholera. If we look at the heroic moment itself, if we look at the removal of the handle, this is often told of a story of a doctor saving many lives with this great medical innovation. But if you look at the death certificates, the epidemic was pretty much over by the time the handle was removed. So no lives were saved. Snow did not save any lives in the midst of this epidemic. In fact, the handle was actually put back on a couple of weeks later because the parish authorities decided they didn't really believe him and cholera didn't break out again once the pump came back into use. So the story gets a bit more complicated. More broadly, let's say we start to look at public health. We start to look at governmental reports, legislation, all that sort of thing. Snow isn't mentioned. He had no influence on contemporary health policy, public policy. This didn't Partly this wasn't helped by the fact he died in 1858. He had a stroke and died very quickly. There was a public health revolution going on at the time, but it was driven by a completely different theory, an ancient theory of cholera, this idea that cholera is in fact a smell that's spread on the air rather than some kind of microorganism passing through the water. Finally, germ theory itself. You might think on the basis of this heroic story that I've told you that as soon as Snow's work is published, everybody now accepts a germ theory of cholera. But in fact, a germ theory doesn't emerge for about another generation. It emerges in a completely different place in Germany. And the man who comes up with it, Robert Koch, doesn't mention Snow at all. So this heroic story falls to pieces as soon as we go back to the sources. Snow, as a hero, as a leading figure in 19th century medicine, is in fact a creation of the 20th century. When the discipline of epidemiology was emerging through the 1920s and 1930s, the people who were founding that discipline wanted a heroic founding father. So they looked back through the books and they seized on snow. So we can see many layers of history at work in this example. We can think about, I suppose, first of all, the past. The thing that historians are really interested in, the thing we don't have access to, that thing that is just tantalisingly out of our grasp, what actually happened. We have sources. We have maps. We have texts of all different kinds. We have audio recordings and video recordings, all sorts of things illustrating the past. So we have evidence surviving. We have sources. We have history, the kinds of stories we can tell with this evidence. We can tell heroic stories. We can tell contextual stories, all kinds of stories. We can start to ask questions of the sources. Why did things happen in this way? What were the roots of these events? The great question of social history, what was it like for the people living through this? Using a slightly more jargon word, we can talk about historiography. Historiography is what we're doing now, what I'm doing now anyway. It's the analysis of history. It's trying to understand the different kinds of stories we tell about the past. What's the shape of history? What's its trajectory? What's its focus? Who do we write about? Who do we include in our stories? Who do we leave out? Coming more up to the present day, we can talk about heritage, pubs, blue plugs, monuments, memorials, theme parks, Iron Bridge, Beamish, places like that, Tower Bridge, London itself becoming a kind of heritage theme park of itself. Heritage being public stories, objects, 
stories, evidence, people that become part of our kind of shared collective version of history. And finally, most abstractly, I suppose we can talk about memory. We all have histories, we all have personal histories. They all change as we grow older, as we remember, as we forget, as we make new experiences. And this question of what we remember, what we forget, becomes absolutely crucial to the political impact of history. Forgetting, remembering are political acts. I'm sure there are many examples of this that we can all think about, and we can discuss this um, later on if you like. So you can see, even in this very simple, perhaps rather silly example of a pub in Soho and a story <coughs> attached to it, lots and lots of layers going on. This is history in action. This is what historians like me deal with. And I'm going to try and use this example to demonstrate history in action. Now, history begins really with the sources. And I want to say just a few words about how you might think about sources when you encounter them, something I think you're going to be doing in the seminars for this course. Now, entire courses can be run on source analysis. I really just want to say a few points that apply equally well to reading historical sources and to reading books by historians as well. These are good critical principles you can apply when you're reading any kind of historical work. First of all, it's worth thinking about perspectives. When I first learned history back in the mid-1990s, we were told that there were a set of things called objective sources and a set of things called bias sources. And one of the things we had to do was to separate these two out and kind of use the objective sources. Now, a great deal of postmodern water has flowed under the bridge since then. We don't really believe in bias and objectivity anymore. We talk about perspectives. First thing to think about when you encounter any source is what perspective is it written from? What's it trying to get across? What's the voice that it embodies? And you can see when you talk about perspective that bias doesn't become a very useful term. Think of the most biased book you can possibly think of, Mein Kampf or something like that. Now, it's a horribly biased book. Is it a useless historical source? Of course not. If you want to understand 1920s, 1930s politics, the roots of the Holocaust, it's an absolutely essential book. So bias in this sense isn't a useful term, but thinking about perspectives is really, really useful. Voices. What survives from the past for us our voices, written texts, images, people speaking out, as it were, from the past. It's very, very easy, usually, to work out what a source is saying. Of course, you read Snow's pamphlet, as it were, you hear Snow's voice. What can be much harder, and it's a crucial thing, especially if you're thinking about social history or political history, what are the silences? Whose voices don't you hear in a source? This can be absolutely crucial if you're trying to recover the voices of marginalised groups, of disenfranchised groups, as we do so often in history. So when you read a source, who's not being represented? What's being left out? What other perspectives might we need to tell a bigger, truer story here? Something else that can help here is what we call reading against the grain. In other words, sources don't just tell you the thing they're obviously talking about. Let's take court records, for example. If you go online, you can find the proceedings of the Old Bailey online. Fantastic source. You can find out what your ancestors were doing in sort of 1750 and how they were getting into trouble. Now, you might think court records are a source about legal history. It's a way of understanding legal procedure and law. But, of course, if you read it against the grain, it's also a great way of finding out what the lives of the very poorest people in the world are like. You have testimonies. You have arguments going on. You have 
speeches and statements that tell you a great deal about pubs, taverns, brothels, ordinary life, encounters on the streets, the kinds of crimes that were going on, the kinds of fears that people faced. So just because a source thinks it's telling you one thing doesn't mean that's the only kind of information you can get from it. Read against the grain, read imaginatively, read creatively. A really important word in any modern history is context. So when we're reading sources, when we're reading books, of course we don't read them in isolation. A really important thing to do is to start building up a web of context by comparing different sources, kind of crushing them together, seeing where they work together, seeing where they disagree, seeing how they fit, seeing how they don't fit. Comparing sources, working out, well, as I say, how they fit and how they don't fit is an extremely powerful tool for building up a contextual picture of what you're trying to <coughs> get to. And I think to summarise, the, the best advice I could possibly give anybody when they come to do history for the first time, whether you're reading original sources or history books, is think like a detective. Be suspicious. Be sceptical. Don't trust what you read. Don't disregard everything you read, but don't necessarily trust it. So, go around the back of the building. Go through the bins. Go through an open window. Find other ways into the question. Don't simply take sources at face value. Question them. Follow leads. And in doing so, build up a case. Start to build up an argument. I think that's the way to go. Now, from sources, of course, we come into thinking about the kinds of history we want to write. We don't just write history, we write different kinds of history. And there are lots of different kinds we can choose from, depending on the kinds of questions we want to answer. We can write social history. Big theme in European history over the last hundred years, trying to recover lost voices, trying to think about power structures, and especially the place of the poor and the marginalised within those power structures. So in this case, what is life like in Soho? What's it like to be a poor Italian French immigrant in Soho? What's, what kind of life do you have? What kind of power do you have? What kind of relationships do you have? What's your position in London? How do you make your living? As I say, the old question of social history, what is it like? What was it like for people who were alive? Another extremely popular kind of history, you'll find the bookshops full of it at the moment, cultural history. You get a great understanding of an age through its art, through its literature. What are the themes? What are the preoccupations that come out? How does art deal with those universal themes like death, um, birth, love, sex, all the things that people always have to deal with? How does it deal with the more specific themes? Let's say in the 19th century, we're thinking about the emergence of cities. Read Dickens. What better picture could there possibly be of the growth of cities and what this means for the rich and the poor and the people in the middle than reading Dickens? So thinking about culture, thinking about cultural artefacts, art, sculpture, music, theatre, literature, all kinds of things. If you want to be a bit more hard-nosed, you can do economic history. The 19th century is an unparalleled age of global trade and exchange. Diseases move along trade routes. So if we're thinking about something like cholera, we need to think about the ships of the British Empire, the East India Company, that bring cholera back from Bengal to the urban um, metropolis, um, London, the great centre. Trade, exchange, all of these things in the 19th century, as they have been in earlier centuries, become central to understanding how history works. So we can think about those things. Likewise, we can think about political history. This doesn't have to be the history of statesmen. This can be the history of radical working-class political movements, something we start to see for the very first time in the 19th century. Chartism 
very first working class political movement, very first urban working class political movement anywhere in the world is born here in London. So there's a wonderful radical history to be told um, involving the people um, Snow would have been dealing with um, in his practice in Soho. So we can think about political radicalism, conservatism, we can think about corruption and scandal, themes that of course are very familiar today. We can think about power, how it's exercised, where legislation comes from. Why did public health suddenly become a major concern of government in this period? We can do intellectual history. I'm a historian of medicine and science, so I spend a lot of time thinking about how ideas of the body change. In the 19th century, there's a revolution going on in how we think about how our bodies work. We're moving from an ancient um, classical Greek and Roman idea, which says the body is basically a system of balance, so the job of medicine is to, is to rebalance your unbalanced body, to a more modern view, which sees disease as a kind of invasion. Think bacteria, think tumours, all that sort of thing. So the job of medicine is to kind of fight inside your body and cast disease out. Feminist history, of course, a huge growth area in the last, perhaps, two generations. All kinds of questions we can ask here. We can ask questions of social history, about the lives of women, the lives of poor women and rich women. We can think more broadly about framings of gender, what other factors are shaping how we understand gender, social, cultural, political factors. And again, we can tell a political story here. Political struggle for freedom, liberation, power, position, expression, all of those things. <coughs> we can talk about colonial history. London in this period is not um, the sort of white supremacist um, paradise that people like UKIP might want us to think it was. This was a mixed city at the heart of a mixed empire. So there are fascinating stories to be told about people like Mary Seacole, the Jamaican nurse, who lived four streets away from John Snow. So it was a mixed area, not only all kinds of Europeans, but people from around the world. So we can think about the kinds of cultural encounters going on. And as these examples show, something historians, really of my generation, are starting to get to, to grips with is how do we write intersectional histories? How do we do feminist history that's also political, that's also taking into account colonial perspectives, that also then thinks about how all of that plays into changing ideas about the body? Fantastic work being done at um, Queen Mary, for example, on a kind of intersectional history of menstruation. All of the different ways, all of the different factors that go into changing perceptions of this human universal, half the population anyway. So there are lots of different kinds of history we can write. We can also choose to write about all different kinds of things. I'm not going to talk through this list because you've already kindly tolerated me talking through one list. But there are lots of different subjects we can choose. And again, what we choose to write about can give us radically different perspectives. Of course, we can write biographies, we can write about individuals, we can uh, illuminate an age by the life of one characteristic individual. But we can also write about classes. We could write about, again, as is going on over at Queen Mary, we could write about the history of emotions, this new centre for the history of emotions. How do you do the history of love? How do you do the history of hate, of distaste, of all of those feelings that we share? So there are lots of different choices we can make. And the choices we make, whether we do social or cultural history, whether we write about buildings, battles, animals, diseases, whatever it may be, are partly a matter of how we think about the shape of history. One of the big questions for historians over the last two or three hundred years is what is the grand shape of history? What's its trajectory? Where has it come from? Where is it going? Now, of course, one very influential answer to that comes out of Christianity. 
Christianity tells us that there is a profound shape to world history. It begins with the creation, it moves through the fall, redemption of man through Christ, and it will end, if you read that drug addict's dream called the Book of Revelations, it will end in the most astonishing kind of fireworks display on the part of God. But since the 18th century, since the emergence of what we can broadly call sort of um, secular enlightenment values, we start to see new ideas about the shape of history. One of the most influential is one we've already encountered. It's what's sometimes referred to as the Whig version of history after the political party that came to power in the 18th century. Whig history is all about heroes. It's about geniuses. It's about a small number of people, usually white, usually men, who have led us collectively out of our ignorance and squalor and barbarism and towards knowledge and civilization. I like to think of this as the Brian Cox version of history. All about, in my own discipline, we've spent three or four generations fighting against this kind of history and trying to broaden out the picture of the history of science to include not only other kinds of people who aren't white and aren't geniuses and um, aren't men, but also other factors as well to bring in economic and social and cultural kinds of factors. One of the most influential accounts of how history works comes from the German philosopher George Hegel. Hegel argues that the history of the world is the history of ideas. He sees the world as the working out of what he calls spirit, geist. And this process happens dialectically. Entire, more than PhDs, entire libraries have been written about the dialectic and how the dialectic works. And I'm not, thank God, going to go into that here. But Hegel sees history essentially as being driven by the struggle of ideas towards the ultimate triumph of human spirit. Now Karl Marx, um, uh, not not directly a student of Hegel, but but very much inspired by him, takes this idea and turns it on its head. He takes the idea of the dialectic but says, no, history is not about ideas, it's about material conditions. So it's about economics, it's about commodities, it's about um, the physical things of life, the necessities, rather than the abstract world of ideas. And Marx says the place where dialectic happens most importantly is class struggle. It's class struggle that for Marx is the motor of human progress. That is what is going to take us not to the triumph of spirit, but to a communist utopia for Karl Marx. In the 1990s, we had a spate of rather triumphant American histories, the most famous of which was Francis Fukuyama's um, The End of History of the Last Man. Fukuyama argued rather oddly, that history had in fact come to an end, that the appearance of liberal democratic capitalism in the West marked the emergence of human's utopian state. And Fukuyama said all that is left to happen, essentially, is for liberal democracy and capitalism to spread to the rest of the world, something I think we can now greet the hollow laugh that it deserves. (laughs) Sorry? Do they really? Good Lord. I wonder what Fukuyama makes of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, at the same time, through the 80s and 90s, of course, postmodernism was emerging. And postmodernism has had a profound effect on history. I mean, firstly, it's, in a very practical sense, it's reminded us of the point that history is not the past. It seems quite an obvious point to make, but histories, books, television programs are, to use the postmodernist term, texts. They are stories we tell. They bear the same relation to the past as a legal case based on um, uh, has with the witness sort of statements and the events um, that, uh, that it's built on. But the postmodernists, people like um, Lyotard, a French scholar, um, led us to be very suspicious of any of these arguments. 
It was the postmodernists who said, be suspicious of grand narratives. Lyotard said, that is the postmodern condition, suspicion towards grand narratives. So we've been encouraged to abandon these big stories. Why do we need a big picture of human history? These ideas tend to be the ideas of powerful white European men. They tend to include a very small number of people. So the postmodernists, if you like, have hit these grand narratives with a hammer, and what we're doing at the moment is studying all the fragments, thinking about history in a much more polyphonic and rich and confused kind of way. So you can see here some of the tools that we have for historical analysis. It's a very broad discipline. It's very, very diverse. Like the law, it is both subjective and objective. It is certainly based on facts, but what is crucial is the interpretation of it. And that's really where the fun starts. That's where <coughs> politics comes in. That's where ideology, economic persuasion, your own position in things, comes into the kind of histories that you write. Now what I'm going to do for the rest of this session, I'm going to retell this story. The story that I began with, this rather strange antiquarian story of John Snow. I'm going to retell the story of cholera <laughs> thinking and dying in the 19th century. I'm going to look at it from different perspectives. I'm trying to build a bigger context here to show you a richer kind of historical history. <coughs> and in doing so, I'm going to try and show you how history works, how you do it, how you might think historically in practice, and also why you might want to do it. And in the process, I hope I'm going to show you that what looks like a fairly minor episode in the history of science is actually central to one of the greatest political and economic transformations in British history a revolution in whose aftermath we're still living. Now, as I've said, history in many ways begins with sources. And we have an enormously rich range of sources surviving from the 19th century. Not just books, and we have millions of books, newspapers, letters, government papers, statistics, pictures, paintings, novels, sculptures, almost anything, even toward the end of the period, a few recordings. We have Queen Victoria, we have Tennyson reading some of his poetry. So there's an enormously rich range of sources surviving from this period. And if we start to look at these sources with an eye to thinking about cholera, the first thing we encounter is a paradox. On the one hand, there are lots of references to cholera. Cholera had an enormous cultural and social impact in the 19th century. The mid-19th century is often known, it was known at the time, it's still known now as the cholera years, so its cultural impact is something like HIV-AIDS in Europe in the 1980s and 1990s a disease that defined an era. And it's taken up not only in medical books, but also in novels. If you read Dickens' Hard Times, essentially a cholera novel, textbooks, cartoons, parliamentary debates, legislation, and so on. So on the one hand, cholera has an enormous cultural, political influence. But if you look at it from a different perspective, if you look at it from demographics, if you look at it in terms of deaths, who cholera is actually affecting and who it's killing... The picture is really very different. Cholera, in demographic terms, didn't have much of an effect at all. didn't really kill that many people. It came only four times between 1831 and 1867. Compare that with the Black Death, which came dozens, if not a hundred times, between the 14th century and the mid-17th century. The Black Death, on its first visit, killed something like a third of everybody in Europe. Cholera throughout the 19th century, is never more than 
the maybe third or fourth most common cause of infectious, um, infectious cause of death. Things like TB, the diseases of infancy, are far bigger. They kill 10 times, maybe 100 times as many people. So what's the story here? Why is cholera so culturally potent, so politically potent, when in fact it's not really killing that many people? Again, the sources suggest several reasons for this. If you look at a lot of the sources, here's one of them. Cholera is portrayed as a foreign invader. You can see it here literally embodied as a foreign invader, as a Hindu trying to break through the wooden walls of old England. A good old John Bull is about to uh, send him back where he came from. So for a lot of people, cholera, Asiatic cholera, as it's known, embodies the dark side, the anxieties, the tensions over the British Empire. We think of the British Empire as the British sort of... Um, conquering the world and enjoying it very much, but there were enormous anxieties over the empire. Should we have this? How should we run it? Should we be in charge of half the world? Should we attempt to turn it into a Christian empire? Should we leave it as essentially an economic endeavour, which is what the British Empire began as? So we can see a set of anxieties here that take cholera from just being a kind of medical concern to something that's about national identity, that's about who we are as a nation and the boundaries of that nation. You can see here those boundaries being very graphically breached by cholera. We can also think about the intensity of the epidemics. As I say, cholera doesn't kill that many people, but when it does come, it kills a comparatively large number of people in a small space. It kills indiscriminately. Most infectious diseases carry off the old and the young and the sick. First of all, cholera will kill anybody. You can be walking around happily in the morning, and by the next morning, you can be dead. It can kill you very, very quickly and indiscriminately. So it's very, very frightening as a disease. And we can see this if we start to think about the physical effects. Apologies for any of you who have slightly weak stomachs. This is a contemporary engraving of one of the very first cholera um, deaths from cholera in Britain. This is a woman who died in um, Sunderland in um, 1831. Now there's never been an age more obsessed with dying well than the Victorians. Maybe only the ancient Egyptians with their funerary architecture and mummification have been more obsessed. Victorian middle-class culture, um, establishment culture, if you like, was obsessed with the idea of dying well. And this was usually a gradual death. Think of all those sentimental scenes in Dickens. Drifting away gradually into the next world, surrounded by your family, essentially at peace, having made peace with God, made a will, gradually sort of dying. Now, of course, Victorians didn't really die like that. Very few people do, but that's the cultural ideal. I compare that with cholera. <coughs> Excuse me. If you get cholera, it's pretty much the opposite of this. You die quickly. You die um, a very painful death, a very embarrassing death. Cholera, I don't want to get um, too far into the details, but essentially it kills you through dehydration. You get massive diarrhea. So if you get cholera, you've got something like a one in two chance of fitting yourself to death in a puddle of your own watery stool within maybe 24 hours. This is not the Victorian good death. So there are great concerns over the physical effects. There's also the fact that contemporary medicine can do absolutely nothing for you. Doctors at the time acknowledged that they had no specific treatment. They didn't really have any specific treatments for any diseases in this period. Many hospitals in London sensibly, if cynically, closed their doors to cholera victims. They said, there's nothing we can do. If you come in, the disease will only spread amongst our wards, so you can, you can die outside rather than um, killing many more inside. Um, one other thing. One of the major 
general treatments in this period that almost any doctor would try for almost any disease is bleeding and purging. This, again, harks back to an older idea of medicine about rebalancing the body. But if you're already dying of essentially fluid loss, if your doctor starts taking pints of blood out of you, you will simply die all the more quickly. So medicine could do nothing, and in many cases it did harm. There's also great um, medical debate in this period over exactly what cholera is. Here's an editorial from The Lancet showing this concern, or this confusion. What is cholera? Is it a fungus, an insect, a miasma, a bad smell, an electrical disturbance, a deficiency of ozone, a morbid off-scouring of the intestinal canal? We know nothing. We are at sea in a whirlpool of conjecture. Now, when the leading medical journal in the country says that, you can see the kind of state that medicine is in with regard to cholera. <coughs> because of this, cholera provoked great um, public anxiety. This is a set of regulations posted up in Clerkenwell. This always makes me think of Dad's army and Corporal Jones going, don't panic, don't panic, when in fact he was panicking. This is exactly what's going on here. What this poster essentially says, cholera has come, this is how you know you've got cholera, we can't do anything for you, sorry. So this was the, if you like, the government's attitude towards the disease. And I think more broadly as well, cholera is the first statistical disease. What I mean by that is that it's the first disease that can be observed through the perspective of statistics. So in 1837, the British government starts collecting centralised data on births, marriages and deaths, and whilst that might sound frightfully boring and administrative, it gives a really potent picture of Britain. Statesmen, politicians, administrators, for the first time, can see Britain as a whole in terms of numbers. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that it's with statistics that you get the discovery of populations. I don't mean governments noticing for the first time that there are quite a few people living in the country. I mean the idea of populations as something that can be studied, something that can be analysed and thought about, rather than just as a kind of unruly irrational mob of people. So cholera can be studied in this new way. Governments can trace its appearance, they can trace its movement, its disappearance, but they can't do and do anything about it. So statistics have opened a very informative but a rather disquieting window on the spread of disease across the country. It also strikes Europe in a period of political instability. After the end of the Napoleonic Wars in 1815, Europe suffers massive economic depression, as nations tend to after the end of long wars. Famines, bad harvests, bad weather, as I say, economic depression, the rise of working-class political movements like Chartism. So there's great concern amongst European governments that cholera is going to be, if you like, the straw that breaks the camel's back. Cholera is going to be the thing that finally pushes a sick, poor, urban working class into revolution. All European governments in this period fear basically the French Revolution happening again. So cholera, in this sense, is political. It could be the thing that finally pushes the working classes into outright revolt. And finally, I think perhaps in some ways most importantly, cholera is a disease of cities. Industrial cities are new in this period. Nobody has seen anything like industrial Manchester on the face of the planet before about 1820, 1830. And many people are just horrified by these places. They stink, they're dirty, they're loud, they're busy. They generate enormous wealth for the nation, but they seem to be destroying the people who live there. So again, you have a kind of anxiety here. Should we become an industrial nation? Is it good for us? 
we may become very wealthy in the short term, but is it essentially going to destroy our, um, to use a 19th century term, our racial heritage? Is it going to cause Britons to degenerate? So viewed from all of these perspectives, you can see cholera isn't just a medical problem. It raises really difficult political, economic, moral questions for Britain. Britain is increasingly wealthy, increasingly powerful in this period. This is the beginning of that maybe 75 or 100 years where Britain really is the dominant world power. The wealthiest, the most powerful, militarily the most powerful as well. But cholera forces this powerful nation to ask really, really awkward questions of itself. Is epidemic disease a consequence of social order? Do you become sick because you're poor? What's the connection between sickness and poverty? Does city life in some way make you sick? What is social responsibility? If you get sick, are you responsible for it? If you're poor, are you responsible for it? Should the state become involved in regulating health and trying to prevent the spread of diseases? As you can see, these are all questions that are deeply familiar with us today. These are the questions of industrial, urban life. These are the questions that we have to argue about when we get into government, when we think about running a state. And it's in London and around the time that cholera comes that these questions are being asked for the first time in the industrial nations. So you can start to see the range of perspectives we could draw when we come to think about cholera, <coughs> and also the kinds of questions we could start to ask. And the story I want to tell you begins really not with disease in some ways, but with poverty. It's evident to most observers in the early 19th century that cholera overwhelmingly kills the dirty urban poor. These are the people who suffer most from this disease. And the early, mid-19th century witnesses not only a series of arguments about the nature of cholera, but also radically new attitudes to urban poverty. Now, the traditional response to poverty in this country before we industrialised was a set of laws um, passed in the, the very last years of the reign of Queen Elizabeth, the Elizabethan Poor Law. This essentially said, <clears throat> if you are poor, the only place you can get any kind of state welfare is the parish in which you were born. So this is a very conservative kind of measure. It's also trying to restrict the movement of people. So it's saying if you want to get any kind of poor relief, you've got to go back to where you were born. So it's trying to keep the rather troublesome migratory poor back in the largely rural parishes where they came from. Now this was all very well in a Britain that was largely rural and quite sort of static, both socially and in terms of physical mobility. But by the early 19th century, this system was in disarray. Think of London. Think of the number of immigrants coming to London. You know, if you, suddenly if you're poor in Soho, you might have to go back to Yorkshire in order to claim any kind of poor relief. Also, very small, very poor parishes in the centre of London suddenly had tens of thousands of residents who were born there, so had the right to claim poor relief, but the parish couldn't afford it. The parish wasn't getting really any income from its largely poor um, inhabitants. So this system was collapsing. And in 1832, the government establishes a World Commission to come up with an alternative to this, to come up with a new poor law. Now, this new poor law is very strongly influenced by the ideas of two Enlightenment thinkers. Two people I suspect you will have heard of, the first of whom is Adam Smith, a Scottish philosopher and economist. I suspect if you've heard of anything I'm going to talk about, you've heard of Smith's book, often referred to as The Wealth of Nations, produced in 1776. No coincidence, I think, that it comes out in the year of the American Revolution. 
The reason this book is important is that it's the first attempt in European history to theorise capitalism. Capitalism has existed since pretty much the Renaissance. Capitalism in its modern form is invented by Renaissance city-states like Venice and Florence. But nobody had really thought about how it worked. Smith spent a lot of time doing exactly that, and his conclusion was that the free market is the best possible way to run an economy. Now, of course, we can debate that claim back and forth. Smith goes one further, though. He also says an econo- a free market economy is also the best possible way to organise a society. If you want the best possible wealth, equality, general happiness of all, have a free market. Any intervention, says Smith, will reduce the efficiency of the free market and therefore produce worse social outcomes. People will be poorer, less equal, more unhappy. <coughs> Smith famously says, the market operates through a hidden hand. Now, a lot of people who've read Smith think that he's talking really here about a kind of hand of God. So this is a theology, as well as being an economic text. Smith is saying, the free market is God's way of running your economy. And not surprisingly, it's the best way of doing it. Now, of course, this is a deeply appealing philosophy for Britain on the um, eve of the Industrial Revolution. This is an argument for industrial capitalists to be left alone, make a great deal of money, not be restricted, regulated, or taxed, but basically to get on with it. They are the heroes of Smith's story. So Smith is one influence. The other is Thomas Malthus. This is one of the most successful books of the 19th century. This is the kind of book that any literate person who wanted to consider themselves well-read would have read. This is one of those kind of books in the 19th century. It's really, really influential in all kinds of thinking. Um, It's a major ingredient in Darwin's thought. It's from Smith, sorry, it's from Malthus that Darwin gets the idea of natural selection, essentially, as 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 a driver of evolution. But the basic idea of this book is very simple. Malthus had an argument with his father. Malthus' father was a clergyman, and he bought into a strand of late Enlightenment philosophy called perfectibilism. This is the idea, essentially, that human life here on Earth is infinitely improvable. If enough clever, bewigged men sit around thinking about how to improve life, it can get better and better. We can get healthier, we can get richer, we can live longer, maybe we can even become eternal. We can build a kind of heaven here on Earth. Now, Malthus disagreed profoundly with this. This is one of the most depressing books ever written. (laughs) Malthus said, no, there are limits to human happiness. And again, Malthus himself is a clergyman, and what he's talking about here is theology. He's talking about human life after the fall. What's at the root of this argument is basically Christian original sin. Thanks to our sinfulness, says Malthus, there are limits to human happiness. And he uses a very, very simple argument to illustrate this. He says, think about rabbits. Think about rabbits doing what rabbits do. You start off with one pair of rabbits, you very quickly have two, four, eight, sixteen, and so on. So he says population tends to increase geometrically. It goes up on a graph like that. Think about food supply, however. We can only increase our food supply arithmetically, so in a very sort of slow, gentle kind of way. So Malthus says fertility always dramatically exceeds food supply, so... Famine, starvation, perhaps even war, murder, all of those things are inherent in human life. So if we want to be happy, says Malthus, the only way to do it is to follow Christianity. We need to be restrained. We need 
basically not to live outside of our means. Don't have more children than you can feed. Don't spend more money than you earn. Work hard. So Malthus, this philosophy becomes an enormously popular um, way of thinking for the industrial middle classes. So this new poor law embodies these two ideas, the spirit of laissez-faire capitalism and the Malthusian idea of poverty as a kind of individual moral failure. But if you're poor, it's because you've been extravagant, you've lived outside your means. So this new poor law says, <clears throat> the poor are poor because they're lazy, basically. They haven't learned the lesson of the free market. So we need to teach them a short, sharp lesson in the free market. We're going to do this through what they call the principle of less eligibility. In other words, if you're going to have any state welfare, it's going to be worse than the worst available job off state welfare. Now, they do this by setting up workhouses. This is the classic sort of Dickensian institution. Workhouses are intended to be as unpleasant as possible, consistent with not killing you. So, parents are separated from children. Um, wives and husbands are separated. Food is dreadful. Rotten potato peelings, rotten meat, all that sort of thing. You sleep on straw, and you do awful, hard, degrading work. You break rocks, you pick oakum, that sort of thing. And the idea is that this will teach you about the free market, the value of hard work. You'll want to get out of the workhouse, and you'll go and become a very docile part of the capitalist economy. It didn't work. It very quickly became clear that the workhouse is always full. At times, you have a poor banging on the doors of workhouses to be let in and being turned away because there was no space for them. It was also really, really expensive. So the government bring in a lawyer, a man called Edwin Chadwick, possessor of possibly the worst haircut of the 19th century, as you can see, and there were many competitors. Chadwick was brought in to try and work out why the new poor law wasn't working. And his argument revolved around not poverty, but disease. He published a book, again, a very, very long, boring book, but one of the most influential in 19th century history. In this book, he argued that the whole logic of the new poor law was wrong. The poor weren't poor because they were lazy. They were poor because they were diseased and dirty. Chadwick argued that urban poverty was caused by diseases, filth diseases, as he called them, like cholera. These diseases, in turn, are caused by the environment. They're caused by miasmas, essentially poisonous vapours from dirt, rotting materials, sewage, dead bodies, all of the things in the urban environment give off vapours. Vapours blow around in the air, you breathe it in, you get sick. Because you're sick, you can't work. Because you can't work, you get poor. That is Chadwick's logic. He summed this up in a much-quoted bit of evidence to the delightfully named Metropolitan Sewage Committee. All smell, he says is disease. That's the essence of his thinking. So for Chadwick, if you want to eradicate urban poverty, what you need to do is to clean up the urban environment. So you need public health. You need all those tedious, boring things like zoning regulations to make sure that factories aren't built in the middle of residential areas. You need good sewers. You need water to be kept separate from um, sewage. Chadwick's report becomes the basis of really the very first public health revolution anywhere in the world through the 1840s, the 1850s. It's enormously controversial. It's completely against the spirit of Adam Smith's laissez-faire capitalism. It's all about intervention. It's all about the state taking steps 
to organise capitalism, to keep factories out of certain places and to stop factories doing certain things like overworking their workforce or paying them so little they can't afford to wash their clothes, that sort of thing. The 1848 Public Health Act really starts the great clean-up of Victorian cities. It's the very first legislative intervention anywhere in the Western European tradition in what we would now call national health, public health. So London, the London of John Snow, the London of Dickens, becomes both a battlefield and a laboratory for this kind of state intervention, and it's this argument that later feeds into other kinds of state intervention, welfare, the NHS, education, that sort of thing. Now, two really important points about Chadwick's work. As I've said, he's interested in disease, but you'll notice I haven't mentioned any doctors in this bit of the story. Although Chadwick borrows a medical theory, this is an administrative and an engineering solution to the economic problem of poverty. It's not a medical solution to the problem of disease. So you can see here how far beyond medicine we've gone when we're talking about cholera. Cholera to Chadwick is not a medical problem. It's not to be solved in laboratories. It's not to be solved with Snow's pioneering kind of epidemiological work. It's to be solved with legislation by thinking about the nature of abstract concepts like poverty and the free market. It's also worth saying for Chadwick, although in lots of ways it's a radical piece of legislation, it's also really, really conservative. Chadwick doesn't think you need to liberate the urban poor. You don't need to give them the vote you don't need to give them the power, you don't need to let them teach them to read and write. They just need to be clean. So this is not about what welfare reform later becomes, which is about a liberal kind of agenda of liberating the working classes. It's a very conservative kind of agenda. It's not about enfranchising people who don't have the vote. And finally, just as a historian of science, I would say, it's very, very striking that this astonishingly effective piece of public health um, intervention was based on an ancient and now completely discredited theory of cholera. As I say, this miasmatic theory of cholera goes back really to the ancient Greeks. You find it in the writings of people like Hippocrates and Galen, and it was pretty quickly discredited with the germ revolution of the 1870s and 1880s, but it worked. So there's a very striking and counterintuitive piece of intellectual history here about how the history of science works about the, the difference between, if you like, intellectual truth and practical application. So, if we view this story, the story that I started from, the pub, Jon Snow, if we look at this from a different perspective, with a different set of stories, what looks at first like, a, as I say, a fairly kind of uninteresting story of a forgotten medical hero, turns out to be the key to a major episode in British political history. It's that great shift away from early Victorian laissez-faire the early days of the Industrial Revolution, the capitalist free-for-all, and towards interventionism. It's one of the roots of 20th century social democratic welfare states, and I think for many of us politically, this is the battle we're fighting now. The battle we're fighting is to preserve this kind of thinking about the nature of poverty, a fundamentally socio-political understanding of poverty, rather than a kind of moral understanding masquerading as an excuse for free market capitalism. So, where are we now? I'm not going to go over, as it were, the technical details of what I've talked about. If you want to think again about historiography and sources, it's all in the handout. I do just want to think a little bit about what it means to write history today, what it would be to walk out of this room to become a historian. 
In some ways, I think there's never been a better time to write history. The 20th century was an age of arguments over grand theories. Are you a Marxist? Are you a capitalist? Are you a Whig? Are you a Hegelian? We are now in a position where we can put all of those questions aside. We can write history that is empirical, sceptical, multifactorial, that draws on a range of different factors. We don't just need to be economic historians or social historians or feminist historians. We can write grand, polyphonic, wonderful, exciting histories that draw on all kinds of different sources and ideas. <coughs> and I think, in a sense, the most important moment in history is the present. Now, that sounds completely counterintuitive, but what I mean is history is always written through the prism of the present. We always write history and we always read it through the prism of our contemporary concerns. There's no such thing as an objective reading of history. Now, this doesn't render history completely subjective. What it means is history is always coloured, it's always brought to life, and sometimes it's always distorted by our present preconceptions, our own concerns, our political concerns, our own identity, where we stand in our own societies and where we want to go. So history, in some ways, always serves the needs of the present. That doesn't mean it's worthless. In some ways, that can make it even more valuable. And this leads on, I think, perhaps to the crucial point. History is always political. As I say, history is always about present struggles. It's always about thinking about where we are. History is always written in the service of an aim. Now, that aim can be to tell a kind of truthful story about the past, but history can be put, and I'm sure many of you have personal examples of this, examples that mean a great deal to you. History can be put in the service of political reform. It can be put in the service of building a new identity or thinking where a nation or a people or a class or a gender might go. Opening up possibilities is something history does very, very well. What we remember, what we forget, how we explain things, how we excuse things, the sense of belonging that we may have, or the sense of alienation that we may have, all of these tend to find their roots in history. And that's, I think, why historical thinking is so crucial. And I want to end very briefly with two ways, personally, I found very useful to think about history. One is just a way of thinking about how history itself works. As I say, I don't think we need grand narratives today. We don't need to be Whigs or Marxists. What I think we do need to understand is the network, the interaction, the context that's at the heart of history. History is always the coming together of lots of different causal factors that interact, they interact quite weakly. There's always flexibility. Some of them are contextual. In other words, they come from the setting in which events happen. Some of them are individual. You know, we don't need to leave character, personality out of history. But one of them is always chance. History is a chancy business, as I'm sure we all know from our own lives. The second point is really one about what it might be to write history. I think if you want to write good history, it has to be rich. It has to be something that is intellectually, emotionally satisfying. Don't be afraid of telling a good story. That's what history is, after all. It needs to be truthful, but there's no shame in it being useful. As I say, history is always written to some end or another. So it needs to, you need to balance truth, but you also need to balance what we're trying to do with history. We need to acknowledge all of the evidence that's available. I think it's intellectually dishonest not to. And I think a good modern historian can acknowledge the influence of their own concerns. It's very powerful 
to try and step out of yourself and say, well, where am I? Be a historian of yourself. What's my setting? What's my context? Where do I think I'm going? How is that shaping the kind of historical stories that I'm telling? And perhaps the greatest pleasure of history, I think, is unexpected connections. There are some great histories waiting to be written of Soho. I think, in fact, every university in the country should have a department of Soho studies. But if you look at the people who were living in Soho at the time that Snow was working there, it's an astonishing range of people. And just round the corner from Snow's um, flat was a young Jewish journalist. He had a PhD in philosophy. He'd just been expelled from the Rhineland because he was involved in the, the, the revolutions of 1848. And he'd come here to London because London was seen as a sort of a, a fairly free place, a beacon of political liberalism. And his name was Karl Marx. So you have Marx writing what becomes the Communist Manifesto and the, 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 the roots of Das Kapital just round the corner from John Snow doing this astonishing early work in epidemiology. So I want to leave you with one of Marx's theses on Feuerbach. I think we can replace the word philosophers here with the word historians, or indeed any kind of thinker, really, but philosophers have hitherto only interpreted the world. And there's nothing wrong with interpretation, but as Marx says, the point is to change it. I think history gives you by far the most potent tool for doing that. So, thank you. If you'd like to know more about the Free University Level Arts and Humanities courses run by the IF Project, go to www.ifproject.co.uk.